Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at a small slice of American writing using the Library of America as my source material. In this episode, I'll be continuing my look at the works of Charles Chestnut, um, especially the stories in The Wife of His Youth and other stories. Uh, This collection of short stories was written in 1899. I've already talked about some of the stories in this collection in the previous episode. I looked at the first four there and I gave some introduction to this text. This was written the same year as his other short story collection, The Conjure Woman. And they're really a distinct collection. The Conjure Woman is mostly about the legacy of slavery, the interactions between North and South, black folklore, um, African-American language, and the in and that kind of stuff it's it's all all those stories surround the character julius and him talking to a white landowner who comes to the south telling him about the experiences of slavery so in a way it's about a communication between north and south as well through these characters so those are very interesting and i had a whole episode on that the wife of the youth are stories that on the surface are much more political much more edgy they they usually they pretty much all deal with the color line um there's a couple exceptions that aren't really overtly about um interracial identities and people of biracial backgrounds but most are so it's it's really a a novel about miscegenation many of the major characters are mulattoes i should say biracial have biracial backgrounds and it's often, it's really about how people who experience the end of slavery, white and black, but particularly black people, who experience the end of slavery, whether they're free or not, came to terms with new identities and new realities in the aftermath of slavery. Um, they're pretty much all set in the period of Reconstruction, and sometimes they deal with broken families, um, people who were dislodged by the war, people whose identities were in flux, people who maybe had black parents and didn't know they had black parents, or people who um, started to identify more as biracial and really became obsessed with color. And we have several examples of characters like that. In fact, twice in the stories where we looked at in the previous episode, there's a society mentioned called the Blue Vein Society, which is a group of lighter-skinned black people who you know, really see them as the forces of uplift and progress in the black community and tend to want to uh, um, discriminate against darker skinned people. And there's a whole story about that called A Matter of Principle in which a man breaks, uh, ends a marriage proposal between his daughter and a congressman because he believes that that person is is dark skinned. And he was mistaken in that, but he did disrupt his daughter's um, marriage plans. So those, these, every story in here is pretty good. I don't really think any are bad. There's one that's a bit off, and I'll talk about it today. But generally, this collection is very, very strong. 
um, just like the Conjure Woman. But I, these stories are a little bit easier to grapple with, partially because you're not dealing with with the heavy dialect we get in the Conjure Woman. And I, I dealt with that in that episode as well. So in this, this episode, I'll be looking at briefly five stories. Uh, Cecily's Dream. Now, Cecilia's Dream, I think, was not published before it was added as sort of an afterthought to this collection to make it a little bit longer, I think. So this wasn't, it's, that's probably the one that's kind of the weirdest or it has the oddest plot because it deals with amnesia. Now, it's not that he doesn't deal with odd things. He certainly does in The Conjure Woman. I mean, Chestnut. He's in The Conjure Woman, you're all doing all kinds of magic and the occult and stuff like that. But the way for the view stories are much more realistic. They don't really have that overhang of of the occult and folklore and, and magic and things like that. But, I don't know, it's a bit hard to swallow a story about amnesia. But it, it kind of works because it, it, it's, I think it's done better in the Virginia Mammy because in Virginia Mammy you have someone who simply doesn't, was was denied knowledge that her mother was black and then goes through her life believing she's white. So anyways, we'll look briefly at Cecilia's dream, then the passing of Grandison, then Uncle Wellington's wives, the bouquet, and the web of circumstances. So five stories, and that will complete the collection, The Wife of His Youth. I'm doing this one kind of loosely. I, I didn't really jot down too many notes, so it might be a little bit rougher, so I apologize about that. But anyways, Cecilia's Dream. Let's start with that. So in Cecilia's Dream, we have this character, Cecilia, who has raised, she's black, and she has raised this northern soldier who has amnesia, he was injured or something, he was rescued, and he was bright up by this Cecilia, who's mixed blood background. She's a, and this man is called Arthur Carey, and he's, she's in love with him, and she wants to marry him. So it's kind of the opposite, actually, of the Virginia man, because there you have a, a woman raised as white when she has black blood. In Cecilia's dream, it's a man basically being raised in a black community as a black person, and I guess it just kind of shows the inverse of the way the color line could work. And that's overall part of Chestnut's point in all these stories is that the color line is is a fiction and it's it's kind of a historical burden that gets thrust upon people against their will and disrupts their lives and limits their options and presents challenges and often creates great tragedy but you know but like my Virginia yeah my Virginia mammy it's really about a mistaken I don't not so much identity but a mistaken I guess racial identification in, in this case, it's, it's because someone actually literally doesn't remember their past. And Cecily wants to sustain this in part because she wants to uh, marry him. Now, very conveniently, this comes to a head when a woman comes to teach at uh, a school in the South. And it turns out that that's Arthur's former fiance. And she's able to properly identify him and restore his, his memory. And with that, he's able to just basically go back to his old life. And what I, what I do think is kind of nice about this story is, even though it's a bit contrived and a bit hard to believe, is Arthur is able to just walk away from this false identity he's had and go on with his life with Martha, her, her name is. And nothing happens. And that's sort of what he says at the end of the story. It's just Arthur can go on with his life. But it doesn't. That's a privilege that black people don't have. So for them, the historical burden is always much stronger and is constantly being thrust upon them by these these events that they're experiencing. So that's all I'll say about Cecilia's dream. 
Uh, the next is the passing of Grandison, and this this one's a lot of fun. It it's the one that doesn't deal directly with the color line nearly as strongly. It's set in slavery, and it's it's the only one of these stories set within the context of slavery. The rest are all set in Reconstruction or or you know post emancipation America. But the passing of Grandison is set in slavery, and we kind of have a a fun opening story here. We have a young man named Dick Owens who's a son of a plantation owner, a rich planter named Colonel Owens. And Dick Owens basically wants to impress the woman he's, he's, he's in love with named Charity. And she kind of dares him to free a slave as to kind of prove his worth and to prove his, his strength and his assertiveness and all that. And she, it's almost like a dare. And then he actually takes it seriously and he starts looking for a slave he can free and his plan is to basically take a trip to the north take one of the slaves with them and then free him you know and it's it's all kind of condescending because it's kind of you know i'll just try kick him out of the you know the car door or something when when no one's looking kind of way of freeing him it's not like pushing him into the underground railroad or anything so it's basically he's grant he's going to grant this person slavery but but Charity sort of dares him to do it, and he wants to go through with it. And so I think he, he tries, he wants one slave to be the one to go, but his father doesn't let him take him. So instead he takes, he says you should take Grandison. Grandison is is offered because he's seen as least likely to try, by the colonel, to try to take advantage of the situation to affect his freedom. He, I think he wants to take up a guy, Tom, yeah. And the colonel says, he's a good enough boy, but too smart to trust among those low-down abolitionists. I sus strongly suspect him of having learned to read, though I can't imagine how. I saw him with a newspaper the other day, and while he's preparing to look at the woodcut, I'm almost sure he was reading the paper. I think it's by no means safe to take him. And that's why he offers up Grandison. And he says, he's handy enough, and I reckon we can trust him. He's too fond of good eating. And to risk losing his regular meals. Besides, he's sweet on your mother's maid, Betty, and I've promised to let him get married before long. I'll have Granderson up and we'll talk to him. Here, here you boy, Jack. Go down to the barn and tell Granderson to come here. So then Granderson is the one who's going to go with Dick Owens to the north. So anyways, Dick takes Granderson to the north and he gives them all these opportunities to escape. Even they go to Canada for a while where, you know, he was would have been legally free the minute he, he went to Canada. So he had lots of chances to escape. And even he introduces him to abolitionists who try to tell him to come to freedom and he doesn't. He even tries to have him kidnapped or something. And, you know, so he's trying everything he can to impress charity that he helped the slave get free. Anyways, Dick Owens finally gets rid of him by having him essentially kidnapped. And then he goes back to Kentucky to his plantation, marries Charity, and then Granderson returns home. And he, now he becomes the archetypical loyal slave, right? And this all reinforces Colonel Owen's belief that, you know, slaves like being slaves, they're completely content, they're, 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 they like their life, and it reinforces his ideas, particularly about Granderson. So he kind of actually gets a promotion almost to be a, a house slave rather than a field slave at that point. And then the climax of the story simply is that Granderson escapes not long after this was his whole family. So he only came back to get his family. He, he was faking his loyalty all along. <laughs> 
and they end up towards Canada and they get their freedom. So this is a really nice story of resistance and it shows how, um, well, I guess the most interesting aspect of the story is, is even the, in the title, the passing of Granderson. Granderson never passes as white. He, I suppose he, um, he's what he's passing as is, is a loyal slave, right? So we do have a false identity, which is a common theme in these stories. And I guess that's a thematic overreaching that comes in all these stories. But it's a very purposeful, conscious manipulation of assumptions about slavery in order to um, escape. And not just escape for himself, but eventually to escape for, for his whole family. And despite presenting, being presented as very subservient, very loyal, not likely to resist, Granderson is always in control of his situations. He knew what he was doing all along and he was constantly plotting. And it's very fulfilling at the end of the story to see how it all comes together and how the whites in the story were all made a fool. Um, and I guess, I guess thematically this this kind of ties to maybe passing more broadly um, because I think a big part of like the house behind the cedars, which is a novel strictly about literally racial passing. A lot of the hostility of the white character towards the woman he loves that emerges is because he feels he was tricked or lied to or, you know, manipulated in some way. Uncle Wellington's wives, the next story, say, Uncle Wellington Brayboy is is a man who, after slavery ended, he, he's relatively light-skinned, so he, he can pass as white. And so this is a story about passing, uh, racial passing. Uncle Wellington has a darker-skinned wife who is, is, by all accounts, a very good wife by late 19th century standards. She's a good cook. Uh, she cares for him. She's always there. She's very loyal. So, but he's just sort of tired of her. And he hears about from, like, he listens to a lecture. I think it is. The lecture is called The Mental, Moral, Physical, Political, Social, and Financial Improvement of the Negro Race in America. And he gets into his head then that racial integration is possible and admirable, and that there's possibilities of racial uplift in the North. But he gets really hangs on this idea of integration and assimilating into white culture. And he begins to believe that he can, he should pursue white women and, and go to the North and marry, marry a white woman. And that's what he begins wanting to do. So his problem is he's married to his wife. So he goes to a lawyer and he tries to work it out with a lawyer if he if he's really married or not. And it turns out he didn't actually have his marriage officially recognized after slavery ended. So he's a slave. He has a slave marriage, which isn't legally binding. However, his other problem is he doesn't have money. But the lawyer also says, "Well, your wife's money is your money." So now Wellington wants to go north, and he to do that he has to steal his his wife's money. So he's in a bind here legally. On the one hand, if he takes takes her money he's sort of much assuming he, that he's the husband who has control of these funds this is before um married women had complete control of their property on the other hand he also wants to marry someone else so he, you know he'd be he'd be a bigamist if he just left her and married someone else so he's in this legal bind but he just justifies it in some ridiculous way and then does just go away to the north and he starts to live as a white person 
he eventually goes to the north and he marries an, an Irish woman. And this Irish woman is a bit of a drunk. She's she's everything that his wife is not in, in a bad way. But it's, she's white. And so he's kind of very happy that he's achieved this crossing over into into white society. And he, it, it shows he sort of really misunderstood the original lecture, which is really about racial uplift and integration and whites be, or blacks becoming part of broader American culture. But for him, it just sees like, I should take advantage of my light skin and pass as, as white and be and live as a white person. Eventually, the, the woman he marries leaves him and abandons him. And so he has nothing to do. So he goes back home and he actually overhears as he comes to the house he overhears his his former wife the one he never really married talking with someone else about how she's been abandoned and she reaffirms her loyalty to her husband even though he stole her money and abandoned her and that's when he comes home and and it's almost like that it's almost like a uh, you might see in a, in a comedy where he says like well i just got back from cutting wood or whatever and she accepts him back into the home. So despite trying to pass, he find, you know, it's relatively easy for Uncle Bullington. He finds much more acceptance at the end of the day in, in his original family. The bouquet is a really short piece, and it's a, it really has, packs a punch. It's, it's really emotionally very strong. It's about a rich white woman who decides to teach at a black school in the South. So she's someone who you know, wants to... Uh, basically be involved in racial uplift. Um, and Chestnut makes a point of how rare this is, that, yeah, whites would often teach at these black schools, but very rarely would it be people of the old planter class aristocracy. Um, she has one student in particular, Sophie, S-O-P-H-Y, who really develops a connection with with this teacher, and teacher's name is Myrover, Mary Myrover. And what... Sophie brings every day's flowers to Mrs. Myrover every day. So this is a real part of their, their binding and their relationship. And this disturbs the students very greatly, especially Sophie, who wants to go to the funeral. And in the end, she can't go to the funeral because the funeral's for whites only. So that's the story. Very dramatic and meaningful, emotionally meaningful story of, of the color line and just the violence inflicted on these relationships and despite efforts by this young woman to um, teach black students at the end of the day the power the color line is much stronger than any relation she built up between them and i think chestnut here is trying to say that it's not enough really to just you know lift up a hand of charity and aid there has to be something much broader the color line has to be abolished if we're really gonna uh, repair this this breach in in American life, and then that leads us to the final story: the web of circumstances. The web of circumstances is really a story about an unfair prosecution, uh, and that destroys a, a person's life. It's just all he did was steal a little trinket. At least that's what he accused of. He doesn't actually do it, and he did not, he inserts his his innocence in court. Um, but he steals like a whip, I think I think it is. Um, and he gets the judge throws the book at him and he has to go to jail. And from that point on, his life just degrades more and more and more. And by the end of the story, he's really ragged looking and humble. 
and he's eventually shot and killed by his former boss who sees him as a quote desperate looking negro clad in filthy rags and carrying in his hand a murderous bludgeon end quote so now i don't quite agree with the title of the story the web of circumstance you know this is a theme that that he comes back to a lot chestnut does he does a lot in the conjure woman and some of the other stories of kind of fate and and how these characters get put into circumstances and horrible things happen to them or shocking things happen to them or they learn weird things about their past or their identity and it all is presented kind of random but i don't know i I think there's much purposeful there's a lot of purposeful oppression going on in this story he's there's these formal and even in some cases informal applications of power at every step in the way. We have the courts, uh, racist judges, we have prisons, racial privileges, property law, and the fact that property law is more property seen as more valuable than individuals, particularly if those individuals are black. That's why this person's life is driven to, you know, to its horrible state. Um, and Chestnut sort of gets to this point in his conclusion, and I think it's important that he puts this at the end of his collection. And this is sort of basically the the last thing we hear from Chestnut in this story. Quote, sometimes we are told when the cycle of years has rolled around, there is to be another golden age when all men will dwell together in love and harmony. And when peace and righteousness shall prevail for a thousand years, Godspeed to that day and let not the shining thread of hope become so enmeshed in the web of circumstances that we lose sight of it. But give us here and there and now and then some little foretaste of the golden age that we may more patiently and hopefully await its hope or its coming, await its coming. End quote. So what Chestnut's saying here is that there are concrete things we can do to improve this, right? And he doesn't really give a formula for that. He's talking mostly about the tragedy of the color line. He's not giving concrete solutions here and there. But, you know, all the characters in this story, especially the ones who have really horrible things happen to them, their fate could have been avoided in in practical ways. It's these characters weren't doomed necessarily. There are really institutions and ideas and, you know, racial values, racism, violence, lynching, courts, sheriffs, uh, you know, laws against interracial marriage, rape and slavery, on and on. There's all kinds of things that that the, that didn't have to be, I guess. So it, these are tragedies, but they're not necessarily the unavoidable Greek tragedies. They're, they're, they're tragedies rooted into systems of racial oppression. I guess that's how I want to conclude my look at the wife of his youth and other stories by Charles Chestnut. So sorry for being a little bit disjointed here. I, I didn't really jot down any notes. I was just going over the stories um, as I remembered them. So thank you so much for listening. Next time I will be talking, I'll begin a two-part series on Chestnut's novel, The House Behind the Cedars, which is all about passing. Um, it's got some really interesting insights into the, the ideology and the philosophy and the worldview of the post-war white South. It's, it's a really fascinating novel. So I'm looking forward to talking about it. So that will be the next episode. So again, thank you so much for listening. If you have any of your own comments about Chestnut, about 
late 19th century black literature, about the reconstruction experience, about the post-war experience of black Americans, please leave them below. Or you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I would uh, love to hear from you. So um, I'll be back next time with uh, the beginning of The House Behind the Cedars. Yay!